This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Although he was obviously a mixed success as a politician, he's one of the pristine and shining examples in American history of a president who approaches the office like a judge and measures all of his actions against the Constitution. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover many, if not most, of those things for Slate.com. And while the Supreme Court is on break this summer and the political machinery around Justice Kennedy's successor grind into overdrive, I thought we'd zoom out for a week or two and explore some of my favorite writing by some of the very best thinkers about the law and the history of the law and the courts. So I want you to think of the next couple of weeks as kind of an amicus summer book club. Because the obvious choice for beach reading is a book like this, a scorching biography of William Howard Taft. No, I'm not joking. Scorching may not be the word, but fascinating and surprising really are applicable here. Jeff Rosen is the author of five books, and his new biography of Taft is part of the American Presidents series. We had Jeff on last year to discuss his biography of Justice Brandeis. But in addition to being an amazing writer of judicial biography, Jeff Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. He teaches law at George Washington University. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic. And most important for us, he is the host of Amicus's sister podcast, We the People, which makes him kind of my cousin. So welcome back to Amicus, Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you. It is wonderful to be back and to talk to your great Amicus listeners. Um, so, Jeff, I, I have to just confess right off the bat that uh, uh, William Howard Taft is an improbable choice uh, for someone to dig deep in. Uh, most of us don't know anything about him. I think we all know he was too big for his bathtubs. He was girthy, I think, is the locution uh, that I'm going to put forward. Uh, very reluctant politician. Uh, not somebody who leaps uh, to mind as a, a singularly important president. Now, I know you were assigned this task, uh, but tell me, what surprised you most when you started to get to know William Howard Taft? Uh, I think C-SPAN ranks him as the 24th greatest president. Uh, what, what, what was news to you as you started to work with this material? What surprised me is that he was our most judicial president and presidential chief justice. Uh, he's uh, a Constitution wonk's dream. Amicus listeners and We the People listeners can find in him an incredible uh, constitutional hero because he was a former judge who pined to be Chief Justice of the United States. And he achieved his lifelong ambition after his uh, rather mixed presidency and thrived on the Supreme Court 
although he had struggled as president. Judge Doug Ginsburg on the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, told me two things for the book that are really significant. First, he said, William Howard Taft is the most underappreciated constitutional figure since George Mason, who refused to sign the Constitution because it had no Bill of Rights. And second, uh, Judge Ginsburg told me that Taft is the second most successful chief after John Marshall. So it was just so exciting for me as a lover of the Constitution uh, learning all this for the first time, because I knew as little about Taft as many of your listeners do, uh, to discover that he approached every decision as president in constitutional terms, uh, asking, uh, uh, does the Constitution explicitly allow this action, unlike Theodore Roosevelt, who said the president could do anything the Constitution doesn't for- forbid? And although he was obviously a mixed success as a politician, he's one of the pristine and shining examples in American history of a president who approaches the office like a judge and measures all of his actions against the Constitution. It's so interesting you say that, Jeff, because it really, uh, you know, what threads through this biography is a uh, such reluctance to be a political figure. And I don't even mean, you know, what you're describing, that he doesn't even want to run for office and be president. But also he doesn't like any of the things that politicians have to do. He doesn't even like, you know, giving sort of barnstorming speeches. He's just kind of somebody who you can tell uh, would be happier uh, in a library with a stack of books. And then the other thread that's so interesting is this pushy wife who keeps saying like, no, no, go to Washington, be important. I want to live in the White House. Am I mischaracterizing or are those things happening? No, it's exactly right. Imagine the wonkiest judge that you could uh, think of and admire today, and I, I'll, your listeners can pick their own favorites, suddenly turning out to be president of the United States because his wife made him do it, basically. He says, I want to stay on the bench. I'm happiest on the Sixth Circuit, which is what Taft believed. And she is just pining to be in the White House. So he reluctantly goes into the White House and he approaches the office like a judge. And instead of trying to uh, engage in the arts of popularity, as he puts it. He writes his speeches like judicial opinions. The, the, high, the, the dramatic high point of his presidency is a, is a battle over tariffs, which looks a lot like the one today, except the Republican Party is split between a bunch of factions, those who want to basically keep a protective tariff, which they've had ever since Hamilton's day, those who want to lower it, and, and those who want to keep it the way it is. So he's he's telling Congress, lower the tariffs. I promised I'd do this in the campaign. My presidency is hanging on this. And then he sends a message to Congress and they're all waiting to hear what he's going to say. And it's 340 words basically saying, as I've already explained in my inaugural speech, you should lower the tariff. Please do so. And they're stunned because it's so legalistic and, and unpolitical. But he thinks the president's constitutional responsibility is to recommend legislation, but it would be uh, a transgression to actually lobby for it. And he leaves it at that. It's just a total category error in his conception of the role, but there's a kind of pristine beauty to it because uh, he's so scrupulous about observing constitutional boundaries. So so that's the thing I have to ask you uh, before we, we dive into the details is that you can't read this book, and I think you didn't write it, it's clear from your epilogue, uh, without living in the Trump presidency. And this is such a stark counterpoint, Jeff, to the current president who uh, is seemingly not super concerned about constitutional constraint. Um, and actually, I think one of the things that's so interesting to me uh, when I read this is that Taft is coming after Teddy Roosevelt. He's trying to... Uh, 
fill a space that has been occupied by this huge larger-than-life character who really didn't care much about constraints on the executive. Is there a way that you can look I mean, I'm hearing you say it explicitly, I think, in the epilogue, and I think you're flicking at it now. But can you look at this as a kind of counter narrative to the current era that we're in, where it's almost this whimsical, what if we had somebody who only cared about being constrained even in his own presidency? It's just such a counterfactual to the moment we're in right now. Absolutely. I I don't mention the current president's name in the book, but of course, he is the anti-Trump in, in, in every respect. He's a president who only thinks of constitutional limits on his role uh, rather than not thinking about those. But it's not right to contrast him just with uh, President Trump. The truth is that ever since Franklin Roosevelt, uh, the imperial presidents, as Arthur Schlesinger called them, have viewed themselves as stewards of the people whose role is to channel direct democracy. And then recently, uh, we've seen presidents from George W. Bush to Obama to Trump ruling by executive order rather than by uh, trying to persuade Congress. So Taft's insistence on putting Roosevelt's activist executive orders on firm constitutional grounds by persuading Congress to enact them is a counterfactual. But more broadly, Taft was prescient in anticipating in the election of 1912 the waves of populism that he felt would undermine the framers' conception of a representative republic rather than a direct democracy. Taft says in his book Liberty Under Law, we are not a pure democracy governed by direct action, and the great men who framed our fundamental law did not intend that we should be. Taft, like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, thought that the people should have their will. This is so Madisonian. He's channeling Madison directly, but they have it after a wholesome delay and deliberation, which they have wisely forced themselves to take under the restrictions of a constitution. This was Madison's notion that majorities should rule, but only thoughtful majorities who persist over time. And the framers set up a system to slow down the direct expression of popular passion in order to promote that thoughtful deliberation. And Taft in 1912 is seeing both Roosevelt and Wilson from opposite at ends of the spectrum, suddenly endorsing progressive mechanisms like the direct initiative and the referendum and the direct primary, which allow for the direct expression of populist will. So fast forward to the Trump era, and now we have Facebook and Twitter and Twitter mobs and digital disinformation, all vindicating Taft's wildest fears about the danger of governing by Brexit Brexit votes and, and, and direct Twitter polls rather than thoughtful deliberation, and his scruples about uh, resurrecting the Madisonian system become all the more prescient. I wonder if, again, this is going to sound like a ridiculous counterfactual, but I'd love for you to think a little bit. I think something you said now is so true, which is in some ways – the way we think about Taft is so informed by the fact that he's bookended by these two huge figures, right? He can't get out from under the shadow of Roosevelt. Uh, his failure, I think, to perform on what Roosevelt expected him to do uh, becomes in many ways his undoing. And then he's equally anxious about Wilson uh, for some of the same reasons. You know, this is somebody who's just a straight down the line middling, <laughs> you know, just very, very not like the two people that bookend him. And I wonder, Jeff, can you disaggregate where he comes in history from 
what he becomes. Is there a, a world in which he would have been a really extraordinary president uh, who wasn't in the shadows of these larger than life figures? Or are we just kind of committed to the proposition that our presidents need to be these kind of steward slash emperor slash big personality people? Uh, maybe I, I don't even know what I'm asking other than in what universe uh, is is William Howard Taft uh, capable of being a, a transformational president? No, it's a great question. And, and, and it's answered by uh, the political scientist Perry Arnold, who I quote in the book, who says, not sandwiched between Roosevelt and Wilson's Taft's presidency would be seen as successful. Compared to the norms of the party period presidency, his initiatives were notably aggressive. He passed more reform legislation in his four years than Roosevelt had in his seven years. So there's no question that he was disadvantaged by being sandwiched in between these extraordinarily popular and more populist presidents. You know, is there a world in which he'd be seen as wildly successful? I, I, I'm not sure about that because the constitutionalist presidency, he viewed himself as a as a, a steward who was supposed to, as he, as he said, it has been a very humdrum, uninteresting administration that's preserved liberty and and not, uh, you know, and a balanced budget and not disrupted things too much. It was a, it was a modest uh, self uh, assessment uh, from a, from a, from a modest constitutionalist president, but I think the the, the counterfactual that I'd love to think through with you is: Is there a case for neo Taftian presidents today? Now that these populist forces have become so overwhelming that they have uh, alarmed people about whether Facebook and Google threaten the future of deliberative democracy. And also in a world where the party system has disintegrated, it's so important to recognize Taft as a creature of the Republican Party. And he viewed his main role as preserving Republican Party unity. He notably failed. He split the Republican Party for a generation when Roosevelt challenged him. But a world where parties could bring together different coalitions was a much less polarized world than ours. And now that the parties have been undermined by everything from campaign finance to geographic self-sorting and segregation, they are not able to play that filtering role anymore. So the question is whether there's all the more the case for a constitutionally minded president who slows things down who and and who goes to Congress uh, for support. You know, the, the closest analog to Taft today is, is President Obama, another former professor of constitutional law, extraordinarily thoughtful and cerebral. And he chose to rule by executive order. And as a result, many of his most important initiatives are being reversed by his predecessor. Now, of course, Obama felt that he couldn't get Congress to go along and the polarization in the party required it. But maybe a, a, a little more uh, support from Congress as Taft tried to achieve might have made the Obama legacy more lasting. So so this is kind of a paradox, Jeff, because the whole time I read the book, I kept thinking, ah, this is the tonic to the world we live in. Uh, this is the counterpoint to this moment is some Taftian world order. But of course, the paradox is nobody like that will ever be elected again. Well, that's exactly right. And that's the uh, dilemma of the celebrity culture. And it's, it's what the framers feared. I mean, M Madison and Hamilton... Uh, Madison says in Federalist 55, even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob because he believed that uh, large-scale groups, when they engaged in direct uh, democracy, would elect populist demagogues. And that's why they set up all the filtering systems. And now that those filtering systems are gone, we're getting the demagogues and celebrities that the framers feared. So it may be that we're going to need other solutions like Facebook putting 
diverse views on its newsfeed rather than hoping that uh, Judge Doug Ginsburg or Judge David Tatel will be elected president. But um, but it is a, a, a counterfactual and it just it makes us realize how far we've strayed from the framers conception of what the presidency was supposed to be. Jeff, one of the things that you write about in the book, and I think it was exerted in The Atlantic, is that one of the ways that Taft really does become the anti-Trump is uh, in regards to his uh, thoughts about tariffs and trade uh, and his willingness to cede all authority over to Congress uh, rather than going it by himself. Can, can you explain that a little bit? Because it is so incredibly timely in light of this moment in the Trump era. It's interesting how much of American political history is a debate over uh, tariffs and how uh, much of the American economy from the beginning was founded by tariffs uh, because uh, we, we only briefly had income taxes uh, during the Civil War and the Cleveland uh, presidency. And it's also striking that the Republican Party under Hamilton was founded on the idea of uh, protective tariffs to raise revenue, but not to insulate industries from too much competition. So a modest protective tariff was the cornerstone of the Republican Party. By the Gilded Age, the Democrats were free traders. And this all exploded in the progressive era when consumer prices were soaring and journalists like Ida Tarbell are showing the costs of protection on the American worker. So uh, Taft is a moderate reformer. Roosevelt was too, but he didn't have the guts to actually force the issue because it was such a political third rail. Taft takes seriously his contract with America and the Republican platform of 1908 that the Republican Party is committed to tariff revision. And that's why he actually proposes that Congress lower the tariff. And it just creates an explosion because the bill is so watered down by the various special interests, in particular the Stan Pat Republicans uh, led by Joe Cannon who want to preserve a protective tariff to protect uh, northern manufacturers to the detriment of Western uh, uh, farmers, uh, the, the, the bill satisfies no one, neither the strong uh, progressive uh, and Republicans who want meaningful reform, nor the free traders, nor the Stan Patters. Taft uh, has a endearing flaw. He's compulsively honest. Uh, I, I remember in the book that Michael Kinsley, the great journalist, said a couple years ago that in Washington, a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth. And Taft went out on the campaign trail and said, this is the best tariff bill the Republican Party ever passed. It was. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But given the political circumstances, the statement infuriated both sides who weren't happy with it. And came back to haunt him and went viral on the wireless. Uh, so it is uh, it vindicates um, the verdict of Speaker Cannon, who noted that the Democrats lost the presidency in the House in the 90s when they tried to engage in tariff reform, and Taft totally split the Republican Party uh, in 1908 and 9 when, when he tried to do the same. Uh, Cannon said any politician foolish enough to take on the tariffs is going to ensure the defeat of his party, and we'll see if that's prescient this time around. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
I want to talk to you for a moment about our membership program, Slate Plus, because if you're hearing this, you are listening to the regular version of our show, which is awesome. But if you were to sign up for Slate Plus, you could enjoy this show commercial free and you would have access to bonus segments and extended versions of all your favorite Slate shows. And it costs just $35 for your first year. And you can sign up free for two weeks to check it out. And that's not all. Quite seriously, by signing up for Slate Plus, you would be supporting this show and all the journalism that we do here at Slate. And we know you value our coverage and you love our podcasts. And you also know how urgent this work is now more than ever. So we need your help to keep doing it. Sign up for Slate Plus. Help secure Slate's future. To learn more and to begin your free two-week trial, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And we are back discussing William Howard Taft with the wonderful Jeff Rosen. So I have to ask you, I think just because my listeners and your listeners at We the People probably uh, would be most surprised to find out that somehow after he breaks uh, with Roosevelt, which is, I think, extremely painful, you know, you, you've, you've got him, you know, breaking down and crying uh, uh, over what was a lost friendship. Um, but the break in many ways uh, surrounds uh, Taft's vision of the judiciary, of an independent judiciary. And he's really concerned uh, as the primaries in 1912 uh, uh, begin to focus on questions of the judiciary. He's starting to see Roosevelt as a demagogue who's willing to sort of say anything to anyone. Uh, And Roosevelt is now trashing the chief justice by name. And he's proposing all these reforms that, you know, people should be allowed to vote to overturn unpopular state court decisions. They should be able to re call state judges. Roosevelt is kind of all in on trashing the judicial branch in ways that, again, feel a little Trumpy to me. And here is Taft deciding, like, I shall be the guy who fights for an independent judiciary. And I think the sad code of that story is that nobody cared, right? It You state it perfectly. And isn't it poignant and beautiful for Amicus and We the People listeners? Taft is moved to run against Roosevelt for president, even though he doesn't want to, to defend judicial independence. That's the cause he feels most passionately about. He says, while he's president, the most urgent issue facing America today is civil and criminal justice reform. And when he sees Roosevelt attacking individual judges by name, uh, endorsing recall of judges when the people disagree with their decisions, and saying that the people rule and have the right to shape their own constitution— Uh, He feels like he's got to defend America from Babylon and the mob. It's uh, at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia in our beautiful grand lobby. There's a quotation from Roosevelt saying essentially that the people rule and they are the makers of their own constitution, 1912. And ever since writing the book, I've been calling on uh, listeners and friends to propose alternatives to that quotation because the next sentence is – you, you should overturn judicial decisions by popular vote. So amicus listeners, if you are as inflamed as William Howard Taft by Roosevelt's demagoguery, if you want to write to me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org and suggest an alternative constitutionally minded quotation to put at the National Constitution Center, that would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 
answer the depressing part of this question, please, Jeff, which is the people didn't care. They don't care uh, that Roosevelt triumphs and Taft loses. And it's uh, I mean, I, I, I guess in the pri- for the purposes of the primary, uh, Taft wins. But nobody cares about his big and and ethical fight for the independent judiciary. Uh, do they? No, you're you're absolutely right to stress this. I mean, he comes in third. It's the most humiliating defeat by an incumbent president. Only Utah and Vermont vote for him. And uh, I mean, he's got two pretty compelling opponents. One is uh, created the most successful third party in American history based on progressive principles. And then we have uh, Wilson, who's uh, supporting free trade and with the help of my other hero, Louis Brandeis, denouncing the curse of bigness in business and government. And we have this titanic battle between Roosevelt's new nationalism, a Hamiltonian endorsement of big government and regulation, and Wilson's new freedom, which is insisting on breaking up the big banks so that they can't take reckless risks with other people's money against such a a spectacularly galvanizing battle of ideas, Taft's fervent defense of judicial independence uh, strikes a deaf ear and, and seems rather wan and, and wonky. But I know that every amicus and we the people listener would have been a Taft voter in 1912. Well, so I guess we get to – he gets to, to have a second act unlike so many former presidents. Uh, he gets to be the chief justice uh, in 20, 1921. Uh, President Harding taps him to be the chief. It is clear that he's like – Oh, thank God. Now I can do what I really want to do and goes on to be, as you point out, an incredibly uh, effective uh, chief justice. And he makes all sorts of important moves toward, I think, protecting an independent judiciary. Promises that he was making on the stump are then fulfilled when he is in charge of the judicial branch. Can you describe a little bit what some of the things are? I mean, some of them are just funny because they're, again, you know, they warm the hearts of the amicus listener to hear that he was a great administrator. You know, like these are not the (laughs) kinds of qualities that necessarily inspire, but he, he made the thing work. Can you talk about about sort of the legacy of that? Because I think those are the places that what he did to protect the judicial branch are so important and still felt today. Um, Absolutely. Uh, They are wonky, but they're crucial. And there's a strong case that he was the most effective chief since Marshall as a result. Taft had three great achievements as chief. First and most visibly, he built the Supreme Court building. Before the court had met in the basement of the Capitol, it was embarrassing. The judges had to put on their robes in public. And he thought that the judiciary needed a palatial temple of justice that signified its independence as a fully equal branch of government. And he lobbied Congress for the money and worked with Cass Gilbert to design it. And it wouldn't have been built without him. So it's Taft's building. Uh, Second, he passes the uh, Judiciary Act of uh, 1922, which gives uh, basically uh, creates a uh, the circuit uh, conference and assembles district judges and and appellate judges uh, so that they can deal with a docket that's clogged by prohibition cases. It was the war on crime of its time, and the cases aren't being decided. And it does sound wonky, but without it, we wouldn't have a judiciary that was administratively equipped to challenge the president the way it's doing today and keep Congress within its constitutional bounds. And and, uh, all of the effectiveness and power of the modern judiciary were created by Taft. When I I, – 
Stimson, the uh, Secretary of War under Hoover, Roosevelt, Taft, and even Truman, uh, said that Taft, out of all those presidents, was the best administrator of them all. And the creation of the modern judiciary reminds us that administrative skills are actually crucial when you're building up a branch of government, which had been uh, in the 19th century. And then finally, in 1925, he passes uh, the act that gives the court control over its own jurisdiction, uh, certiorari jurisdiction, which amicus listeners know allows the court to basically pick and choose and focus on constitutional cases and cases about which the lower courts are divided uh, rather than uh, being forced to decide a jumble of private law cases that are not of national interest. Um, all that dramatically shrunk the court's docket. Uh, it allowed the court to focus on cases of constitutional import and it increased the prestige of the court by making it the ultimate arbiter of constitutional questions. So the modern judiciary that we know today would not exist without William Howard Taft. And just there's such a poetic justice about it because his father, when uh, he was young, said to be chief justice is more than to be president in my estimation. And Taft always uh, believes the same thing. And, and it's so satisfying that for a, such a frustrating uh, mixed success as president, he achieves his dream. It was no accident that he achieved it. When it, when it comes time for him to appoint a chief justice during his own presidency, He's about to appoint Charles Evans Hughes, the former New York governor on the Supreme Court, young and dynamic. But Taft, but Hughes is dressing to get to the White House on the way to an interview and Taft cancels the interview because he can't bring himself to appoint someone who's bound to outlive him. So he mysteriously appoints uh, Edward Douglas White, the 65-year-old uh, Southern Democrat. The only explanation is he hopes that White will expire in time for Taft to replace him. And after an alarming few years of, of, of life, uh, <laughs> White conveniently uh, uh, shuffles off the mortal coil uh, <laughs> and, and dies uh, in time for, for Taft to replace him. So he kind of lays the groundwork perfectly. He achieves his dream and he does a wonderful job at it. Can I ask you, uh, I, I, I'm going to just characterize it as a hard question, Jeff, and it's laced through with things we've been talking about on this show for the past year and a half. And that is, you know, folks who hew to the notions that we're lauding here, you know, norms, uh, gentility, moderation, civility, uh, long, decorous conversations that bring out opinions and 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 shy away from all the flashiness that you and I are deploring in this conversation. I, I think that, you know, let's put all that in the bucket of norms, right? And and you and I have talked about this before, but what what we decry in the Trump era is the the, the devolution and the devaluation of norms. Uh Taft is a, a norms guy, it seems to me, and also a, a, a structures guy and, a, you know, in, in all sorts of ways, I think is a, a moderate guy. And, and I'm reminded of, you know, Jed Purdy just wrote this great piece talking about how norms always skew in favor of small C conservative values and big money values and I know that Taft, you know, on his seat at the court was we voted consistently with the conservative justices. Is there a way in which these two projects are in tension, what you and I are asking for in the world, which is a, a return to norms, a return to moderation and civility and listening and all these judicial values that fundamentally those redound to the benefit of the powerful at the end of the day? 
It's a great question. It is a hard question, but I really think the answer is no, because Taft could be called a conservative progressive or a progressive conservative. And he thought of himself, like Roosevelt, as a progressive. He brought more antitrust suits in one year, that one term, than Roosevelt brought in nearly two. He withdrew more land for environmental conservation than even Roosevelt had. And all the norms you're talking about, thoughtfulness, deliberation, filtration on popular passion, rule by experts, these were the values of the progressive party. They were the values of Louis Brandeis. The values we're discussing are anti-populist values. And there's nothing inherently conservative or liberal about populism, as we see from the union of you know Sanders and Trump mm -hmm. voters. Uh, mm -hmm. Populism uh, has an, an economic uh, component. It uh, eschews experts and elites and demands uh, direct expression of uh, popular uh, uh, will. So I, 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 I'm confident in responding that uh, people who are more of a progressive bent – uh, will be just as well served by preserving these norms, uh, by insisting on the importance of facts and evidence. These are all progressive uh, values. Um, and, and that's why I'd, I'd call them Madisonian values. And Madison wasn't clearly a, a liberal or a conservative, but he was a constitutionalist. And in other words, caring about structure shouldn't skew conservative or liberal, although individual constitutionalists will skew one way or the other. It's about being devoted to what these podcasts are devoted to, Dolly, I know you and I care so much about this, bringing together people of different perspectives for thoughtful deliberation. And the listeners who are listening to this, thank you so much for taking the time to educate yourself about the Constitution. And I know that you are people of different perspectives who may disagree about politics but are committed to the American project of rule by reason rather than passion. This is what the framers feared, that in mobs, passion would triumph over reason. And you have to take the time to listen to different points of view to cultivate your faculties of reason. And some citizens will spend more time on it than others. So in that sense, there, you know, you could dismiss this as elitism. And the framers didn't believe that all citizens would rise to the challenge of self-government. But it's not a liberal or conservative project. It's a project of those who are committed to the party of reason. Uh, Jeff, I, you know, the part the part of me that has gained seven pounds in the Trump era needs to ask you about William Howard Taft's uh, dramatic weight loss program, uh, which you actually uh, recount in unbelievable detail. Can can you talk a little bit about? Uh, I think Taft is is well known. Uh, I think even uh, his mother described his huge capaciousness as a baby. But can you um, can you talk a little bit about uh, his weight and his uh, weight loss uh, when he determined to do so? His mother did say he has grown very fat, but his face is wreathed in smiles, which I loved. <laughs> but uh, we think of Taft as our largest president. He was. After him is Grover Cleveland. And I think uh, our current president has surpassed President Clinton as the third, uh, the, the president with the third largest avoir du poids as it was called in Taft's day. But this is a misnomer because for most of Taft's life, he was relatively buff and trim. Basically, he ate his feelings and he was uh, unhappy when he was thinking of running for president. And in the White House, he ballooned up to 340 pounds. But after he left the White House, he returned to the paleo diet that he'd uh, enjoyed right before becoming president and lost 76 pounds in six months. It's the most inspiring diet you've ever seen. There's actually a book called The Taft Diet, which chronicles his losing about three pounds a day, basically by eating uh, vegetables and fruit and not very much else, a, a little grilled 
uh, lean meat and a bit of beef bouillon tea uh, and the occasional gluten-free biscuit if desired. But basically, he starved himself uh, down uh, uh, and lost 76 pounds. And he kept his weight off for most of the rest of his happy life. When he's chief, you can see pictures, and he's of of relatively normal weight. And he... um, uh, walked every day from his house in on Wyoming Avenue in D.C. across what's now the Taft Bridge to the Supreme Court and kept trim that way. But what's so meaningful, uh, I find, about the Taft diet, in addition to the diet itself, which I've tried to follow, is <laughs> really effective, actually. Uh, it's, if we all eat like William Howard Taft, we can be incredibly buff. But um, he, of course, he compares this uh, to the challenge of citizens in a democracy. And he says, just as uh, people have to overcome a strong taste for drink by disciplining themselves or the t- strong appetite for food, so citizens in a democracy have to restrain themselves against their momentary passions and prepare themselves for the rigor of self-government. And it's just a beautiful analogy. He was engaging in self-government when he took this Herculean effort to lose all the weight, and he thought all citizens in a democracy had to do it too. I also have to say I I felt poignant empathy for Taft because he was the victim of what we would absolutely call today weightism. And he took the jokes about his girth and good humor, and he has the famous line when someone asks him how his horseback, he's boasting about having a good ride on horseback and uh, Secretary Root wires back, how is the horse and so forth. So he made the usual jokes. But um, they were incredibly cruel. He became a pop cultural meme when he's president. Citizens in Colorado uh, greet him at a railroad station with a specially constructed bathing costume that they want him to put on so they can gawk at him in the in the local stream. And he uh, takes all this uh, without um, uh, acknowledging the pain that it must have caused and then responded by losing the weight and engaging in impressive self-discipline for the rest of his happy and productive life. I think we're going to have to get the Taft gluten-free biscuit people to sponsor <laughs> sponsor my pet podcast and yours. Sponsored by Gluten Be Gone. The Taft diet is good for your constitution. Boom. Jeff, thank you for your time, my friend. Thank you so much, Dahlia. It was such a wonderful conversation. Jeff Rosen is most recently the author of a new biography of William Howard Taft in the American President series and also the author of five other books. And he is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, which I seriously urge you to visit with your children, uh, if only to inspire Jeff with some better quotes going forward. Jeff Rosen teaches law at George Washington University. He is a contributing editor at the Atlantic, and he is also the host of our sister podcast, We the People, which I urge you to check out. And with that, we will call it a day for another episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in touch, our email is amicus at slate.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we will be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, 
and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.